from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Zechariah chapter 6. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dapple horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes towards the north country, and the wild ones go after them, and the dapple ones go towards the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrol the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go towards the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobajah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go, to the, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be on the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helen, to Bajah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. When I was a child, I learned the children's song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. I don't know whether you've heard that song. He's got the whole world in his hands. You know this song. Uh, it's a, a, a bit of a repetitive song, but it says there, uh, God has the whole world in his hands. Uh, he's got the wind and the rain in his hands. In other words, God has power over the forces of nature, the wind, the rain, and the waves. He's got the little tiny baby in his hands. In other words, uh, God have all babies in his hand, even those who never saw the light of day. And the song continues, he has, he's got everybody here in his hands. So he's got you and I in his hands. Our lives, our stories are in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's a very repetitive song, and I doubt if we would teach this song to our children today. But it's making a very important theological point. God 
has the whole world in his hands. He is the sovereign ruler, not only the creator, but the ruler of heaven and earth. The Westminster Confession of Faith, speaking about how God rules his world, says this. God, the great creator of all things, upholds, he directs, he disposes, he governs all creatures, all actions and all things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence. According to the infallible foreknowledge and free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom and his power and his justice and his goodness and mercy. In other words, God has the whole world in his hands. He rules over everything with absolute sovereignty. He has a plan for everything that happens and not even a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from his will. God is in control of absolutely everything. There is no such thing as chance. The Lord reigns and rules over every atom, every molecule that exists. He rules over every nation, every political elections, every legislative council and every government. He governs all creatures, all actions, all things, from the greatest even to the least. John Calvin spoke of God's providence as his invisible hand working through the fabric of history in everything. God working out his invisible counsel, working out his purposes in the world for his own glory and for the good of his people. And yet, there are times in our lives when we have the impression, don't we, that the world is going out of control. Think of the parent who is told that their child has cancer. Think, think about this. You hear that news. Now you know that God is in control. You know that God is all-powerful, that he's sovereign. He, you've got the theology right. Then you hit with that news. Your child has cancer. Think of those whose life have been turned upside down because of war. Think of the war that has just erupted in Sudan. Think about living there. Think about being a Christian there. You know that God is sovereign. He rules over all things. He's got the world in his hands. And this happens. What does, what does that do to someone's faith? We know that God is sovereign. We know that God is in charge. And yet there are times in our lives when we feel that nothing is as it should be whether it's in our own personal life or in the world. There are times in our lives when we have the impression that we are caught up in the paradoxes of life that Solomon describes so well in the book of Ecclesiastes. And all of a sudden we're reading Ecclesiastes and it's not just reading something that is in God's word. We have the impression that we are that person. The wicked prospers and goes unpunished while the righteous suffers. The wise dies young and the fool lives a long life. Political and social institutions rise to oppose and oppress the church. Godliness is mocked and despised while secular ideologies are embraced. 
sometimes it seems that the world is spinning out of control. Our theology tells us that God is in charge and then we look around us and then we turn on the radio and we have the impression that everything is falling apart. Now, why am I saying that? I want us to think deeply about the context of the people of Zechariah's day. God is calling them in the book of Zechariah to, to trust in him in spite of their circumstances. But I want us to think about their circumstances. I want them to, to think about what it would have been like, what challenge to their faith it would have been like to live within this context. I want us to see their challenges, to walk in their shoes. So here is the context. The Israelites people have spent 70 years in exile. Think about this, 70 years, a whole lifetime. 70 years under the judgment of God. The same God that's calling them now to trust in him. Think about this. 70 years living in a foreign country under the power of their enemies, raising their families there in Babylon, finding work there, living their lives there. Some of them died there. Some of them have returned into the land. Some have chosen to stay back. Some of them are still thinking of whether to return or not. These were real people with real lives, having to think through and weigh up the implications of coming back to Jerusalem. The situation in Jerusalem was not the most encouraging. The city was in ruin. Resources were scarce. The, building of, the rebuilding of the temple has started, but 16 years have now gone by and it's still incomplete. Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, but also the heir to the throne of David, has, been, has not been able to motivate the people of Israel to see the priority of rebuilding the temple. Instead, they have been busy building their own homes. The priesthood is defiled. We read about this in chapter 3. And there is wickedness in the land. We read about this in chapter 5. Now God is about to do something about this, but this is the context. And as if things were not hard enough, we discover that the surrounding nations around them were doing all that they, can, all that they could to frustrate their resettling plans. For years now they've been oppressed and ruled by foreign nations. The Assyrians took the northern tribes into exile. Then came the Babylonians who conquered Jerusalem and now they are under the rule of the Persian Empire. Do you see the challenge that this would have been to their faith? Think of the fathers living in Jerusalem at the time, trying to feed their families within these circumstances. Think of the mothers trying to raise their children within this time of hardship and uncertainty. Is God for them or against them? Sixteen years have gone by since they've returned. Does God have good purposes for his people? Is God truly in control? We're just believing in something in, in our minds. And then we look around us and, Lord, in what sense are you in control? In Zechariah chapter 6, God gives to Zechariah a vision. And then he gives to him a sign. 
that will consolidate in the minds of God's people the truth that the Lord reigns, that he is powerful, that he is all-knowing, that he is able to accomplish his good purposes for his people, both now and in the future. Zechariah chapter 6 is a reminder to God's people that God is indeed in charge. So I hope you got your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses. So verses 1 to 8, the four chariots, the four chariots of the Lord of all the earth. Who do they belong to? They are the four chariots of the Lord of all the earth. A vision, it's a vision of judgment. So verse 1. So here is a message of judgment in which God is going to show to his people his power, his control over the world, and the resources that he has at hand. So verse 1, Zechariah sees four chariots coming out from between two mountains. The vision has some similarities to the vision that Zechariah received in chapter 1. I don't know if you can remember that far back. There's some similarities between the vision of chapter 6 and the vision of chapter 1. There is a sense in which chapter 6, which is the final vision, comes up and closes off um, that first vision of chapter 1. So there are some similarities with chapter 1. In chapter 1, Zechariah received a vision of the armies of heaven. In chapter 1, Zechariah sees God's horsemen. And what are they doing? They're patrolling the earth. The horsemen come back with a report. They come back to God with a report. What's that report saying? The nations of the earth that scattered God's people are at rest. They're sitting back. They've got their legs up. They're at ease. When God hears that report, when God hears of their pride, his anger is kindled against the nation who have oppressed his people. And God promises to help his people. And God decides to show mercy to them again. So in summary, Zechariah chapter 1, the nations are at rest. The Lord is angry. The Lord promises to do something about it. But in Zechariah chapter 6, the situation is reversed. God is the one whose spirit is at rest. And this is because uh, what we have in Zechariah chapter 6 is a vision of God unleashing the armies of heaven towards the nations of the north and the south. The nations, the very nations... Uh, that were at rest. They're not at rest anymore. The very nation that oppressed God's people are now being judged. God sends his chariots to the north, probably representing nations such as Assyria and Babylon, who both came from the north. God sends his chariots to the south, probably representing Egypt or or Edom, who were both long-standing enemies of God's people. The point is that while in Zechariah chapter 1, the horsemen are sent by God to patrol the earth, in Zechariah chapter 6, the chariots are not sent only to patrol the earth, but are sent as instruments of judgment upon the enemies of God. In the ancient world, chariots were military vehicles. They were instruments and weapons of war. Think of a tank. Think of an F-15 that's the picture of what we're getting here. Those four F-15 coming out of those two mountains, instruments, weapons of war, chariots, 
I would often carry an archer and a shield bearer. Whoever had chariots had a significant military advantage on their enemies. Chariots were fast, but more importantly, they were deadly. So that's what Zechariah sees. He sees those four chariots of God coming out between the two mountains, bent on judgment. Those chariots are coming from the Lord of all the earth. They are coming out between two mountains. Two mountains, we are told, are made of bronze. Now, what does that mean? Some people believe that this is a reference to the two pillars of bronze that mark the entrance to Solomon's temple. Two pillars of bronze that mark the, the entrance to God's earthly dwelling. And now he, Zechariah received this vision of heaven, two mountains of bronze representing the entrance to God's heavenly place. So some people think this is what it means. Those chariots are coming from well, they're coming from heaven and they're coming down. Other people believe that bronze was simply a symbol of strength. Now we are told in that passage that the horses that are pulling those chariots are strong. So maybe that's all it is. A symbol of strength and sturdiness, representing the strength and power of the Lord's army. Others believe that the mountains made of bronze stands as a symbol of God's judgment. Because at other, in other places in the Bible, bronze is often associated with the theme of judgment, God's judgment. But however we interpret the mountains made of bronze, the overall picture is clear, isn't it? God has sent his powerful messengers against the enemies of his people. And his purposes have been accomplished. How do we know that God's purposes have been accomplished? Well, we read about God resting in verse 8. So let me read this verse for you. Behold, those who go towards the north country have set, says the Lord, my spirit at rest in the north country. Things are now reversed. The nations are judged, and God is the one who is at rest. In other words, God's mission, the mission that God gave to his messengers uh, to accomplish, has been done. And the Lord's spirit is at rest. His wrath has gone against them, and now God is satisfied. In Zechariah chapter 1, the nations were the ones who were at rest, relying on their own strength and power, thinking of themselves as invincible. But now it is the Lord who is at peace. He has judged their wickedness. The nations have been judged. The wrath of God has been satisfied. The spirit of the Lord is at rest. The question is, what do we learn from this? What is the application? What does that tell us? The application is this. The Lord of all the earth is sovereign over all things. Though for a time, his enemies may appear to prosper. Let me repeat this. The Lord of all the earth is sovereign over all things. Though for a time, it may appear that wickedness is prospering. Let me say this one more time. The Lord of all the earth is sovereign over all things. Though for a time. It may appear to us that he's not in control. But in the end, the Lord will bring judgment over his enemies. His will will be done. So Zechariah chapter 6, the first part of Zechariah chapter 6, closes off, as it were, the first vision. They're not warnings anymore. It's a message of judgment. 
God has triumphed over, over his enemies. He has the power, the authority, and the means to accomplish his purposes. And this is designed to give God's people confidence in the promises of God and his purposes for his people. And again, context is important. Isn't it? You've got to remember those 70 years, those people coming back into the land, having with nothing, with little, being oppressed. And they receive this vision. The idea here is to, to help them to have confidence, to trust in the Lord. He's for his people. He is on their side. He is not against them. Now, by the time of Zechariah's writing, the vision of Zechariah chapter 6 had, had already started to be fulfilled. Assyria was gone. Babylon was gone. And now Darius, the Persian emperor, is on the throne. But prophecy and history tells us that the Greeks will subdue the Persians, and in turn, the Greeks will be defeated by the Romans. In other words, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the Lord reigns forever. Evil may seem to prosper for a time, but God reigns forever, and his justice will prevail. So from a human perspective, it's possible to understand why the people of God fought that they were at the mercy of the powerful nations around them. They were few. They had no army. Their resources were limited. What could, what could they possibly do? Their enemies were relentless. If you read letters, uh, books like Ezra, God's people are struggling. They were facing all kinds of oppression from their neighbors. And they were being discouraged. Think of how easily discouraged we can get sometimes. Think of how weak our faith is sometimes in the midst of trouble and difficulties. It doesn't take much, isn't it? It doesn't take a lot to discourage us. One comment from someone can discourage us. Now, think of the people of Zechariah's day. In this vision, God is reminding and confirming to them that he is the one who is truly powerful. His authority extends to the end of the earth. And they needed to hear this, just like we need to hear this today. They needed to hear those words of encouragement that no matter our circumstances, in spite of our circumstances and our burdens, and we've been singing about this, and Jordan's been praying about this, God is on his throne. He is in control. He is powerful. In this vision, God is teaching his people that he has the power to remove kings and the power to topple down even the most powerful of nations. The Lord is the one who is truly in charge. In other words, God was calling his people not to despair and not to be discouraged, but to trust, to trust in him and his promises this is what God is calling his people to do through the book of Zechariah. Think of chapter 1. God says to them in chapter 1, return and I will return and I will protect you. What's the challenge there? Will they trust? Will they believe in this? Will they repent? Will they put their faith in God? In chapter 2, the city is in rubbles and God says to them, come back from Babylon and I will rebuild this city without walls. Forget about the walls. The city is going to be so big, you're not going to be able to measure it. What's the challenge there? 
You come into a city and all you see is ruins. And God gives you this, this promise. What's, what's the challenge? To trust. In chapter 3, uh, in spite of Josiah comes up, his clothes is filthy. Representing the sin of the priesthood. The priesthood is defiled. And God comes and says, I will give to Joshua new clothes. And, and God does. What's the challenge there? To trust. In chapter 4, for 16 years they've been stuck in this rebuilding project. Nothing's been happening. And God says, by my spirit, not your might, by my spirit I will accomplish this. What's the challenge there? To trust and to, to press on, to keep going, one brick after the other. In fact, all the different visions carry with them an aspect of God's plan of renewal and restoration for his people. The question is, would they trust? And this is now the final vision. The Lord of all the earth reigns. God has the whole world in his hands. A simple song that we teach our children, and yet so full of truth. His enemies will be judged. Evil will be dead will with, and his purposes will prevail. So when we are faced with the challenges of this world, however form that may take, we ought to remember that God remains in control. When we hear of laws being put in place to hinder the work of the gospel, when we hear of Christians losing their jobs because they are members of a church, when we hear of Christian schools being investigated because of what they believe about Christian leadership, we ought to remember the teachings of Zechariah chapter 6. The Lord reigns. That everything that unfolds in this world is part of God's sovereign plan. And in the end, it will bring glory to God. And God's people will be vindicated. We are to remember that the Lord will judge those who oppose Him and His church. And so we can leave all judgment to Him. In fact, the Bible teaches us to pray for those who oppose us. The Bible teaches us to pray for our enemies, to entrust them to God. Zechariah chapter 6, or at least the first half, teaches us that the, Lord, that the Lord's purposes cannot be frustrated. It cannot be derailed. God is sovereign over all the things of this world. He will judge all evil. And He is calling us to put our faith in Him and to entrust our lives to Him and not to lose hope and not to lose faith especially when everything around us seems to be falling apart. The Lord is still in charge. He's still in control. We can trust Him. But judgment is not all that Zechariah preaches. After the vision of God's judgment over the nation comes a sign, a sign of future peace. Now, what I think we'll see in the second half is this incredible um, thing of God's mercy and grace and wisdom coming together. And before we go to verses 9 to 15, I want to tell you this short story. A few years ago, a father of a hit-and-run victim was interviewed following the sentencing of this drunk driver. So he walks out of court. The drunk driver has been sentenced. The cameras walk to the dad. They put the microphone in front of him. And they say, any words? And this is why he says, something along those lines. He says, we, we thank the judge for his decision today. The judge 
He's done a good job. It's his, his sentence, this drunk driver. But I won't get my daughter back. I won't get my daughter back. And then he, then he puts a question, a very interesting question. He says, what is being done to stop this from happening again? Do you see what he's saying? Judgment is good. But what is being done for this not to happen again? What is the long-term solution to the problem of evil? Judgment is good. But what's the long-term solution? Now we'll come to verses 9 to 15. So the first message, a message of judgment. The second, a sign of hope. So a crown is made for Joshua pointing forward to one that is greater than Joshua. To one who is the Lord of all the earth, Christ himself. So after the vision of verses 1 to 8 comes a word. It's not a visual thing, it's a word from God to Zechariah, the series of visions. Now they're over, and now God speaks to Zechariah and tells him to make a crown. So he's got a job to do, make a crown. Zechariah is to take silver and gold. Where did he get them from? He gets them from the exile, from this little group of people there, held out to buy a Jedediah. Find them, take gold and silver from them, go to the house of Josiah, and make a crown of silver and gold. But to our great surprise, the crown is not meant for Zerubbabel, the heir to the throne of David. The crown is, is not placed on the, on the head of Zerubbabel. Instead, Zechariah is told to make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Look at verse 11. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Now, now, this is not a coronation. This is a, a symbolic act, a symbolic gesture, a memorial. Look at verse 14. Joshua is not made king in this passage. The crown instead is to be placed on his head and then left in the temple as a reminder that someone else is on his way. Someone called the branch. And he will come to fulfill the prophecy that we are about to read in verses 12 to 13. Zechariah is given the prophecy of a man called the branch. Now, you might be using a translation where it's using the translation, the shoot. Now, we know from the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah that this title is a messianic title, pointing forward to Christ, the branch from the stump of Jesse, the king that God promised to send to his people, the Messiah of God, the Christ. So in verses 12 to 13, Zechariah is told by God that this branch, this is how you recognize him. He will build the temple of the Lord. How do we recognize the branch? We look at what he's doing. He's building the temple of the Lord. He will be given the honor of a king. He will sit and rule on his throne. He shall also be a priest. And the work of this king priest will be to bring peace. He will build a temple where, uh, for those who are far off can also come. Now to the people of Zechariah's time, it was a message of hope 
for the future of Israel. It was a message that told the people of God that God's purposes went far beyond what they could imagine. In other words, God's message is not just for them now, but it's pointing ahead into the future. It's like a, a congregation that has a vision for what it wants to be like in 20 years. And all of us can look ahead to this, and this is, this is what we're working towards. It's a similar thing that's happening here. God is giving to them a, a, a long-view vision of what's happening. And this hope is going to extend beyond the life of Joshua and Zerubbabel. And to the people of Zechariah's time, it confirmed to them that the promises that God made to his people before they went into the exile about the Messiah and this king to come were still true and still yes and still amen. So they could trust in him. This sign gave to the people of Israel something to look forward to. It gave to them hope. Hope in the promise of God of a future kingdom, a kingdom of peace. After a message of judgment towards the enemies of God comes a message of hope. God has a long-term solution to the problem of sin and evil in the world. And we are reminded in Zechariah chapter 6 of the two sides, if you want, of, of the gospel. On the one hand, judgment. God is holy and righteous and a God who judges sin and wickedness. On the other hand, we are reminded that the Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger, abounding in love. He gives to us here a message of peace to sinners. Now from this side of the cross, are we not living in Zechariah's time? Now on this time of the cross, we look back, don't we? We know that Jesus has come to fulfill all that Zechariah heard and all that Zechariah spoke about. We know that in the gospel, God's enemies are graciously invited to be his friends. We know that in the gospel accounts that Jesus was born from the line of David. We know that Jesus gave his life to build for God a spiritual temple, the church, where both Jews and Gentile can be reconciled to God. The Bible teaches us that Jesus came to fulfill perfectly all that God his Father had given to him to do. He lived, he died, he rose again. He is now seated at the right hand in heaven. The book of Hebrews speaks to us of the priestly ministry of Jesus on the cross, both as a sacrifice for sin, but also as a great high priest, fulfilling the sign given to us in Zechariah chapter 6, a king priest. From beginning to end, Jesus preaches this same message. Repent, believe, turn away from sin, trust in God. Reconciliation with God is offered, would you take it? A, a simple message, one message, isn't it? Jesus preaches all the time. Turn to God, a message of hope. Now the people of Zechariah, they look forward to this coming branch. They, they look ahead to it. It gave them hope of a future kingdom, a kingdom of peace and righteousness. And when they were discouraged, they could remember that not only the Lord has dealt with their enemies now, but that he's got plans for them into the future. The message is not so different for us today. When we are faced with our difficulties, we need to remember the gospel. We need to go back to, to Zechariah chapter 6, strangely enough, and remember what God has done. He's given to us this king praise. And what is it that Jesus does for us? He reconciles us, doesn't he? 
He brings peace in this relationship that we have with the God of all the earth, the God of that first part of Zechariah chapter 6. And therefore, we don't need to fear God. We have a relationship with God. We can trust God. And now the God of all the earth is working out all things for the good of his people. Here is the God who is our refuge and our fortress. And through Jesus we have access to this great God who is sovereign, who holds the world in his hands. Every one of our stories, every one of our concerns, every one of our hardship, every one of our difficulties, each one of us. And we know what our uh, distresses are and our hardships are. But for every one of us, we have a great God that cares deeply for us. Not a hair will fall off our heads without him knowing he is in control. And then what do we have in the gospel? Jesus, we have is this high priest, the God-man. And he understands our weaknesses. It's not God from afar, but it's God with us. He understands our weaknesses. He can sympathize with us, with our weaknesses, with our struggles. He lived among us. He knows what it's like to, to have sorrow and grief. And so he knows your sorrow and your grief. But more than that, He is able to help us in our weaknesses. And he gives to us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Comforter, to comfort us in our times of trouble, to give us the peace that surpasses all understanding. We are more than conquerors. As those who put their trust and faith in Jesus. And the gospel message is a reminder also to us That Christ has dealt with the problem of sin and evil once and for all. Judgment is good. But what's the long-term plan? Well, God's long-term plan is this kingdom of peace that is to come. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Peace with the world. But also a world in which wickedness is taken away. A time is coming when our Lord Jesus will come back. The The king, priest and prophet, he will come back. And will issue in this kingdom where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. The gospel message reminds us that there is a judgment, that God's wrath is real, and God exercises his wrath. And for those who reject God's offer of salvation, instead of peace, there will be wrath and condemnation and judgment, just like Babylon learned. Zechariah chapter 6 shows to us also, though, that there is a message of hope for those who would trust in God, for those who would put their faith in the king priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. For them, the message is a different one. For them, the message is this, forgiveness for our sins, reconciliation with God, and life everlasting. So just, as, so just like the people of Zechariah's time, we are called to trust and obey all the days of our lives, and especially when life hurts us. Repenting daily of our sins, trusting daily in the promises of God, trusting in the one who holds this world and the next in his hands. Let us pray.
Oh Lord our God, we thank you for such a wonderful and great Savior that you've given to us in our Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that he has taken away from us uh, the guilt and shame of our sin. We thank you, Lord, that he's taken for us on this cross uh, our burdens of our sins. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the great price that he paid. We thank you, Lord, that he's uh, brought us into a loving relationship with you, the Lord of all the earth. We thank you, Lord, that you are our God and that you reign on high, that you are sovereign and powerful and resourceful. Help us, Lord, in our times of trouble to turn to you, to trust in you, and to pray to you and entrust our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.